0: Roaring 20s, baby. Lavish parties, life of luxury, a rocket ship economy, speeding towards unprecedented levels of don't you worry about it. It's an exciting decade, and a fondly remembered one. I threw a Roaring 20s party for New Year's 2020, shout out to the before times. Now, when you picture the glamorous flapper fashion and clandestine speakeasy mirth, who's the president? For such an iconic era, there's not much national memory of the presidency during the big boom. Don't worry. Calvin Coolidge wouldn't be upset to hear that appraisal. Laissez-faire and all that. Now, who are you picturing in the 20s? Gatsby? Careway? Probably not super representative. No offense, but you're probably closer to Renee Zellweger and Cinderella Man than you are to Daisy Buchanan. When we borrow from the 20s for fun roleplay, we intentionally leave out what comes next. That's fine for a party, less viable for historical accuracy. Now, I've got just the hero in mind to look out for the little fella. She comes from... A- actually, don't worry about it. Uh, More importantly, she's done a whole lot to try and build a better life for you. Her work was polarizing, as unpopular as it was necessary. But in retrospect, you could almost say she was fighting against exactly what came next. Her enemies might say that she fought against the idyllic life of American capitalism. I say, all the more reason Lucy Parsons is one of the greatest of the United States. I'm Michael Makar, and this is The GOATIS. POTUS number 30, Galvin Coolidge. Today's GOTUS, Lucy Parsons. I'm fascinated by collective memory. The 1920s is so fondly remembered. When did that image take shape? What did the 20s look like to someone born in the 50s? I can't speak for every historian or regular person since the 20s, but I can guess why the era lingers favorably. For one, the decade is an easy snippet if you're looking for a successful America. New technology, increased productivity, increased quality of life, income, and a notable lack of crisis. Bookended by World War I and the Great Depression, this era is not defined by calamity. And there's some reality to that. Income increased across all wealth brackets. GDP growth was steady and substantial. Women had won the vote. The 20s were far better to the average American than a lot of other decades were. For another, the imagery is just so distinct. The 1910s and 30s look very similar in my mind. A smudged face and, like, desolation. I don't know what Langston Hughes, Duke Ellington, and F. Scott were up to in the 30s, but the crystal chalice jitterbug dance floors of Gatsby's era are unquestionably the prevailing image of the golden decade. So that's what's persisted in the national memory, I'd say. Of course, the mainstream narrative of American history is the white male narrative of American history. Let's pull back the curtain. While the 1920s did offer increased economic and political opportunity to marginalized folks, there was plenty of disgusting cultural malady, as always. In particular, the 20s were a renaissance for the KKK. Membership was secret then, but estimates range from three to eight million members. Obviously that's too many. These are the KKK members, not just the racists. The population was around 100 million, so we're saying 3 to 8% of this place was cancerous. That's not a tumor in your colon. That's your entire digestive tract turned against you. In addition to expanded numbers, the Klan branched out in its hatred. Immigrants, Catholics, and uh, alcohol uh, became points of attack. It's hard for me to understand how much Catholic animosity there was a hundred years ago from Protestant groups, and it frankly disappoints me how much the Catholic Church has failed on issues like LGBTQ rights and child assault because they had about as strong of roots for success in this country as you can have. The KKK hated them. They should have ended up cool. They often didn't. Anyway, immigrants and alcohol, huh? Yep, time to talk about Prohibition. Prohibition was essentially a proto-MAGA movement, a movement for fact-flouting white people with the privilege of looking fondly on U.S. history who lamented the moral decay of our country as oppression relaxed in some areas. Just like MAGA, it was regressive, never constructive, and it was an attempt to consecrate good America as a white, Protestant, haloed bubble without the articulation or possibly self-awareness to admit as such. You see, prohibition, like every drug policy we have, was a way of targeting people outside that bubble. In particular, immigrants were seen as connected with alcohol, Beer was a German vice, whiskey an Irish one, all of it threatening to our wonderful nation. So, the people slightly more removed from their European ancestry moved to ban alcohol. The KKK was a big proponent. It's ironic that prohibition stands as the memorable act of government during the era. It was an extremely expansive move for the federal government during the age known for laissez-faire. Most of the industries that expanded so rapidly faced little government intervention, but then the alcohol industry faced a whole lot. Speaking of laissez-faire, that brings us to President Calvin Coolidge, who took over when Warren Harding bit the dust. Man, truly back-to-back icons. Also, dead president is always a recipe for a wild time. Oh, we'll get to you, Lyndon. Don't worry. I don't have too much to say about Calvin Coolidge, and I don't think anyone should. I'm going to give you three takes on Coolidge and then get out of the way, because Lucy's coming. I know you haven't met her yet, but it'll be worth the wait. I promise. So, Silent Cal, as they call him. His most prominent adventure pre-presidency was the Boston police strike. Coolidge was governor of Massachusetts, the police wanted to unionize. Cal falls in with the opposition, massive police strike follows, lots of chaos, looting and violence ensues, and Coolidge basically says, well that's what you get for trying to unionize. My rapid reductionist reaction is that Coolidge is more anti-union than he is pro-anything. And now, my favorite silent Cal story. So a woman approaches Coolidge at a dinner party. Mr. President, she says, my colleague bet me that I couldn't get three words out of you. What do you have to say to that? You lose. And finally, my tepid take on Coolidge. Not quite hot, but not the general opinion either. My tepid take is that I think Coolidge was kind of a fine president. Now, the entire theme of this show is that he was working with a low bar, but... He was all about maintaining the status quo and doing nothing, but in a deliberate and, you know, economically effective way, during a time where the status quo was better than it had been before, generally. Fortunate for him, but you could do a lot worse. Much more importantly, he was actually pro-civil rights. Equal rights for all Americans got airtime in his inaugural address. He was anti-KKK. He called for lynching to be made illegal. Like I've said, it's an embarrassingly low bar. It's a criminally low bar. And did he accomplish much on that front? No. See the whole do-nothing thing above. Still, what the president says, what the president advocates, has an impact on our views as a nation, and as we've seen in recent years, a president willing to entertain white supremacists publicly encourages and ignites them. Words matter. All right, we're done with Calvin Coolidge. Geez, I think it's break time and we haven't even gotten to Lucy. My bad. Still, she'd much rather you know that the 20s weren't as great as they seemed to know about her life. All right, be right back. Today's episode is brought to you by the American Civil Liberties Union. The ACLU was formed in 1920. It was a contemporary to Lucy Parsons' work, as you'll see. It was formed by a group including Helen Keller and Arthur Garfield Hayes. Hayes was a great dude, lawyer fighting for civil rights and against discrimination, but the reason I call him out specifically is because his name is awesome. I first learned the presence by doing backwards order, and Chester Arthur, James Garfield, and Rutherford Hayes was one of the most forgettable runs. Arthur Garfield Hayes. Anyway. The ACLU today is fighting for your rights, whether or not you are. Voting rights and access are huge campaigns, as is the fight for true justice for imprisoned people. We have minor drug offenders trapped in our inescapable jail system, missing out on years of their lives now and opportunities in the future, largely because of discriminatory drug laws and inequitable enforcement. The ACLU is working with communityalternative.org to move victimless minor drug offenders to rehabilitation programs rather than prison. If you think prohibition was foolish at best and targeted discrimination at worst, you should be upset about how our justice system treats people of color when it comes to drugs now. So, I guess this episode is also brought to you by Decriminalize It, Bro. Our drug laws, and yeah, plenty of other laws, are tools of racism. Welcome back. At long last, let's meet today's GOATIS. Now, while Coolidge's White America enjoyed a laissez-faire river of success, Others refused to be content with a broken nation's prospering. Lucy Parsons was fighting the good fight. Who was Lucy Parsons, and where did she come from? Well, don't worry about it, per her instructions. In her words, I am not a candidate for office, and the public have no right to my past. I amount to nothing to the world, and people care nothing of me. I am battling for a principle. If you're looking for impactful people worth remembering, a good starting point is someone striving to make an impact without caring if it's remembered. Now let's catch you up on what she's been up to in the lead-up to the 20s. Lucy's ideology started taking shape when she married a radical Texas Republican, back when Republican meant taking cues from Abraham Lincoln and not Joseph Goebbels. The Parsons duo incites and supports anarchist protests, movements, and writing. If you're wondering, yes, there was some anarchist violence involved, but that was always after the anarchists had been attacked by police mobs, because that's what riot police are for, it's to create crimes and then respond to them. Lucy and Albert were peaceful, but they were angry about you know, how America is. If you're frightened by the term anarchist, I kinda am too. But here's the skinny of the Parsons approach. Let's say there's a conflict. On one hand, you've got a large number of working people asking for their work to be less dominant and destructive over their lives. On the other hand, are the folks making money off of the labor of that first group? The Parsons approach is to side with the first group of people. It's highly un-American and they were not well-liked. Lucy's husband was eventually hanged for his crimes against America. I'm no lawyer, and this was 135 years ago, but yes, it was bogus, it was heinous, it was murder by legal trial. And Lucy would never give up. She becomes an anarchist protester, organizer, writer, activist, pushing the envelope farther than her husband did and with more tact. I'm not going to credit her with any specific policy influence. She wouldn't want me to, and she wouldn't care. But the labor movement in the U.S. grew and grew. How many hours a day, a week, do you work? Is your employer responsible for your safety at work, or are you? On average, you're able to answer those questions slightly more favorably than someone a hundred years ago. Now, the working class struggle on this continent is older than the U.S. It's what we're built upon. But we're farther ahead than where we started. And Lucy Parsons is part of the chorus that's sang that song of progress. Also, if you're looking for things that Lucy Parsons called out about 21st century America in 19th century America, she also denounced the two-party system. So last time I gave my two main lessons about U.S. history, but I think they're both displaced, even explained by, the more things change, the more things stay the same. Another interesting and conflicting piece of Parson's legacy is her relationship with the suffrage movement. She actually distanced herself from the movement and in some cases openly denounced it. Obviously, she wasn't opposed to women's suffrage, but in my interpretation, she simply wasn't content to play within the system. She saw this as white feminism. As I see it, She recognized that the suffrage movement served whiteness as much as it did women. She partnered up with suffragists when they were truly pushing for women. Lucy Parsons would not compromise, and that's no fault. She had little interest in our system, in chartering policy, enacting it, and enforcing it. She pushed and pushed us forward. Ironically, as an anarchist, she did a lot more building than, say, the prohibitionists who use expanded government to tear down. So, Lucy builds an incredible and well-hated body of work writing and speaking and organizing and getting arrested, what all the greats do. And now, at last, it's time to talk about Lucy Parsons, today's GOTUS, in the 1920s, today's era. And to do that, we need to talk about the organization which received the biggest share of her activism, the International Labor Defense. Ostensibly, that sounds like a pro-worker group, me. One step deeper, they seem to be a communist group. Clutch your pearls, you capitalist pig, they're coming for you. No, yeah, let's do this, episode two, it's time to talk about communism. The international labor defense if you think it sounds scary to the idyllic equal and just reality of america then um i don't know google huac or something you see communism in the u.s has hardly ever existed what we've seen a lot of is a boogeyman term used to shut down any call for left-wing progress alexandria ocasio-cortez is like slightly to the left of any reasonable political spectrum but in this country she's about as radically progressive as we've got sure enough Her attempts to steer government away from serving the rich and towards serving the people are often shut down as communist, which they're not. The Red Scare is an example. HUAC's witch hunts in the 50s are an example. The U.S. terrible foreign puppetry in the Cold War might be the worst. Chile is moving slightly to the left and, like, starting to thrive. Slap that communist sticker on there and install a murderous right-wing lunatic. And just to wrap up this aside, yes, the Soviet Union was horrible. Their regime was awful. But we often used that label of communism to insidiously deny equality and justice to people the world over, including right here at home. The unpopularity of the international labor defense and of Lucy Parsons is just another example of the boogeyman communism justifying a denial of equality and progress. The ILD was an organization focused on targeted legal action, defending justice whenever the rights of working class people, particularly not white Anglo-Saxon descendants, were under attack. The most prominent cases the ILD threw its weight behind were the Scottsboro Boys and Sacco and Vanzetti. Both were highly suspect cases with tenuous evidence that, pretty clearly to everyone observing, were trials of whether certain Americans were exempt from justice. The Scottsboro Boys stood trial for their skin. There was no evidence, no corroboration, no motive, and no legal basis. These were teenagers, children. There were only accusations from white skin. The Scottsboro Boys' skin was determined guilty, eight of the nine sentenced to death. Fortunately, the Supreme Court retried and ultimately decided not to murder them. But the Scottsboro Boys served over a hundred years collectively in prison. Think of all those children could have accomplished in that time. Think of all the fortuitous minds at and around the ILD could have achieved if they weren't so busy working to prevent innocent kids from being murdered by our legal system. Sacco and Vanzetti's case was a viral hit in their day. In short, They were on trial not so much for their skin color as their ancestry. Were you exempt from our justice system if you did not have enough white ancestors on this continent? The judge and jury determined that yes, you were not subject to due process, to justice, to equality if you were immigrants. International protests, appeals, and a specially appointed Massachusetts Investigation Committee were not enough to save them from xenophobia. Nicola Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti were put to death over a trial that would eventually be denounced and disproved by lawyers, the Massachusetts government, and proponents of justice the world over. This is who the ILD fought for, the oppressed, the forgotten, the ones who no one else would listen to. This is who Lucy Parsons worked with. Note that Lucy Parsons was an anarchist, essentially a truer opposite of communism than even capitalism. And yet, she had no qualms working with the ILD because of their values and their actions. She truly put deeds before beliefs and identity. Looking beyond the 20s, I almost get a sense that the anarcho-communists were right about something. After all, the 20s ended with the most severe economic devastation in our history. People in the world's wealthiest nations starved. The laissez-faire attitude carried over from prosperity to poverty turned ingenious to incompetent. Would we have prevented the crash had we heeded the anarcho-communists? Maybe. There's too many contingencies to answer that outright. But what we can say is that whatever was happening in the 20s led to what came next. And at the forefront of trying to change things, trying to build a different, freer future, was a woman who didn't even want you to think about where she came from. So, what would Lucy Parsons want you to know about her life? What would Lucy say if she was here today? Well, she'd be pissed off about a lot of things. She used her life as a sledge against right-wing authoritarian bigots hoarding wealth. So... She'd be understandably frustrated with the state of our country now. And yet, I'm a pretty optimistic guy. I think she'd be glad to see that the standard of life is, like, generally better than it was a century ago, that the targeted persecution so central to the last 400 years of our history is ever so slightly reduced. But most importantly, Lucy Parsons wouldn't give a darn what you thought about her life. She'd be too busy fighting for yours. Thanks for listening.